How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Mm, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Nice. Thank you, Mark. Thank that you, Dr. Was Joe. A wonderful, wonderful introduction. It was it was nice to hear clearly Sophie's vocals. Uh, we don't we don't do get to hear that a lot in pre-production. It's, it's nice to hear. It is true. And and for those who don't know, that song is called Van Gogh. I wrote that many years ago, and the vocalist is my eldest daughter, Sophie Schrand of Science with Sophie on YouTube, an award-winning children's science comedy show. So please go check out Science with Sophie. And an amazing human being. Cheers to you, Dr. Joe, for raising such a wonderful human being. Four of them, actually, but Sophie. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. And, well, you know, they, they have an incredible mom, Carol. And and just as, just about that, I mean, my youngest daughter, uh, Becca, uh, wrote the introductory music to Mark Stiles' Feel Good Friday show. That's right. Well, every, every digital asset that we have uses that riff that she created specifically for me. That's right. Thank you very much. Good. The same composer who does composing for Marvel. That's yes. right, folks. Marvel. She is. Uh, she is the uh, assistant uh, music editor for all the Marvel streaming shows. So, huh? if oh, you've watched cool. um, Moon Knight or Miss Marvel or She Hulk, and you wait for the credits, you will see assistant music editor Rebecca Schran. I am amazingly proud of her as well and if you go to youtube at styles law every single video has becca schran composed music to my stuff i'm very honored to have marvel's music composer composing yeah. my music yeah. so again i mean she she takes other people's music and edits down but she will be also contributing in her own way it's amazing but i must say there has been a lot going on in january a oh, lot yeah. of really really kind of scary unusual strange things that are so hard to to really wrap our heads around especially this case in duxbury and with that in mind I, i'm so honored to have a true expert in forensic psychiatry with us tonight tom could you please introduce our guest Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight we have the honor of hosting Dr. Ronald Shouten, the Director of Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the D.C. Department of Behavioral Health, and an affiliate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Howard University College of Medicine and co-author of Almost a Psychopath. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is such a pleasure. And, and just so folks know, Dr. Shouten, I go back to Mass General days when he also, as he said, there was the author of Almost a Psychopath, co-author um, with uh, James Silver. Not, not a memoir, Joe. Not no, 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 <laughs> not a memoir, which is good. Um, and I think that's very important for us to to note, not a memoir, but it it was a really important book because there's there's this whole question of, first of all, what is a psychopath um and how do you know when you're engaged with one what do you think why did you write almost a psychopath all those years ago well it, it was part of a series from harvard health publications about subsyndromal conditions right so people who have a lot of symptoms of certain disorders depression addiction alcoholism, uh, anxiety, antisocial behavior or psychopathy, right? So they have a lot of the symptoms, but they don't meet the diagnostic criteria. So how do we think about those people? It's subsyndromal. They don't meet the full diagnostic criteria. And yet they are suffering. The people around them are suffering from those behaviors, from those symptoms. And how do we understand that? What's the differential diagnosis on those 
on those symptoms. And so it was part of a series and, and um, Julie Silver, who was Jim's wife, was the editor of the series and, and contacted me because she knew about my work in forensic psychiatry and asked me to do it with Jim and we did it. And uh, it was a great experience. Yeah. And that was now 12 years ago or 10 believe. years ago. Yeah. Ago. I, I can't believe it. It was in that series of almost a psychopath, almost an alcoholic. I mean, we, we had a few of the authors yeah. on the Dr. Joe show. Um, it has been a while, but, but right now here in Massachusetts, uh, over the last few weeks, we have had some very scary news. There has been a gentleman down uh, in the Cape who may have murdered his wife um, and may have disposed of the body. And, and that one, I think, may fit into the category, maybe not just almost. But then there's another case that's going on right here in Massachusetts, in Duxbury. And it's, I think it's it's really stunning. It's a mother of three young children who murdered her children. And I've asked you on today just to to start talking about this. What what could the reason be why somebody would do that? Yeah, it's it's. It's a tragic, I'll just point out, it, it's been a really bad 2023 so far. We've had over 50 mass shootings in the United States, yeah. right? Most of them targeted, people intentionally doing, but we can talk about targeted violence, another another show, another time. These are terrible cases, and it's such a tragedy for the family, for obviously for the children, for the, for the whole community, right? For all of us who think about this, because when things happen to kids, it's it touches us all, right? And it's really, it's awful. Um, so, you know, what to make, why, why, why do mothers, why do parents, but let's talk about mothers in particular, why do they kill their children? And Phil Resnick was a very highly regarded, well-known, you know, legend in forensic psychiatry out of Case Western in, in uh, Cleveland, developed sort of a typology and, and, and talked about this, wrote about this in the early seventies. And basically the, the motivations that he was able to identify looking at a number of cases of infanticide or neonaticide, which is a term he invented like immediately after birth, uh, and filicide, murder of the family. Like one, altruistic, right? The, the, the mother kills or the father kills the child for reasons that they view as altruistic. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Second one, psychotic, completely psychotic detached from reality no one really knows why they did it but it's in many cases it's because of a what we call a delusional misidentification they believe the child has been replaced by someone else they believe the child is satan and indeed the first case i encountered of this it was when i was back in medical school thousands of years ago uh where i was uh, helping an attorney who was a malpractice attorney who was suing the treating psychiatrist of a woman who had murdered her three children and tried to commit suicide herself. Um, and she had had a, developed a psychotic depression and she thought her youngest son, the newest born, at, was possessed by Satan and therefore to save the world, like, this is altruistic as well, had, had to kill that child. And then of course, she, I identified so closely with her daughters and she was going to kill herself because she was so bereft that the situation with her son, uh, she was going to take her daughters with them. And of course, she, sadly, the kids all died and she survived and she was successful in getting an insanity defense. We can talk about that as well. And then suffered for the rest of her life at what she had done. And, and that's kind of a common theme in these cases, psychotic disorder, uh, loss of contact with the reality delusional beliefs, hallucinations, uh, often in the context of depression. And then the belief that I'm suffering so much, I'm so depressed, life is so awful, I can't leave the kids to live a life like this. So altruism, psychosis, right? And a psychosis, again, that we often can't understand. The, the others are accidental, right? They do something and they happen to feel good. Uh, 
unwanted child, unwanted child, I can't, it can be something like, I can't afford to have this child. I can't support the child. We have terrible financial one. Or the rather famous Susan Smith case, which I believe is in South Carolina or North Carolina, where she drowned her three children because she was single and she wanted to have a dating life. And, and, um, and her new boyfriend, her, the object of her interest, uh, didn't like kids. So she decided to dispose of her children. Uh, she did not successfully pursue an insanity defense for that. And then last um, and least common, sort of spouse revenge philosophy. We see men do this more than women where, uh, oh, yeah, you want to take custody of the kids away from me. Well, if I can't have them, then nobody can have them. Right. And that's just an awful, dark you know, heinous act. But what what we usually see in these cases, it's altruism. The world is an awful place. It's a depressed place. I need to do something to save the kids or to save the world from these kids, you know, or, or from whatever's about to happen to them. So those, those are the basic reasons. But is yeah. that... The altruistic example, would that more than likely be categorized also in the psychotic example? Certainly with the depression, but, you know, it could appear just with the severe depression, but it's with psychosis. It's, it's uh, most likely that they have a delusional belief that this is the right thing to do. This is something I, I absolutely need to do. And then they come back to a lucid moment. Uh, only with treatment. Yeah. You know, we, we're going into some very deep and dark waters, and I'm really glad that we're doing that. I want to say thank you for joining today, Dr. Shout. I know Dr. Joe did already, but this community is confused about this and the ability to share your wisdom and help us understand this better we are super grateful so yeah thanks. well thanks for having me mark I, I i appreciate that i mean it is it is terrible I, i'm just thinking i had a conversation with a, a good friend of mine just yesterday who's a, a retired psychiatrist in in the boston area and even though i've relocated further south uh, to the nation's capital i you know keep reading the globe and i'm i'm i see the herald headlines and tuned in so i i'm very much aware of this case and the other case uh, that Joe Joe mentioned, and well, this friend of mine is a very sophisticated guy, very knowledgeable senior psychiatrist. Uh, yeah, confusion, right? People are confused, uh, and he knows about postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis. I, what he was very confused about was, oh my God, how can they be? you know, filing murder charges against this poor woman. Hmm. You know, it's had how, how cruel, how awful to charge her with first degree murder. And uh, is that really necessary? And, you know, we, so we had a conversation about postpartum depression and the insanity defense. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a recovering attorney. I did law school before I did <laughs> medical really? school. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I'm I'm sort of steeped in the notion that there is a criminal justice system, there's a criminal justice system for a reason, and it's important that that process play out. And, and, and I understood my friend's reaction, which was that how cruel to this woman that, you know, she's just, this terrible thing has happened, how cruel to the family to put her on trial and go through all this. But, you know, the point is we, we have the insanity defense, uh, which is rarely used. And rarely successful. I mean, it's it's used in about a tenth of felony cases, and it's successful in a in one percent of felony cases. It's successful in about one percent of those. I mean, it's just it's a tough sell. Interestingly, when you look at studies of postpartum psychosis, where the insanity defense is raised, it's successful in about fifty percent of cases. What right? do you make of that? Why why is that? Well, it's really interesting. Um, at 
one level, I think it's because people are so taken aback or so appalled by the idea that a mother would kill her children. There must be something seriously wrong with her. Unless you have evidence of other evil do it, you know, like wanting to dispose of the children for other reasons, for personal gain. Um, so it's like, oh, must be really sick to have done this, right? So there's an acceptance of that. There's also the idea, I mean, interestingly, England, Canada, Australia, and a number of other countries have what are were, are called um, infanticide acts. So they defined a new crime of infanticide. And this was based on the notion that women were suffering, women who chill, killed their infants less than one year. So it applies to infanticide, children less than one year. It's kind of an arbitrary cutoff if we're talking about severe mental illness. Um, that they would be charged not with homicide, but with infanticide, which is a equivalent to manslaughter as opposed to homicide. Right. Because, oh, they're frail creatures, they're women, they're suffering under this, you know, the influence of lactation, which is nonsense, right? But sort of lessening the crime. And, and criticism of that has included, well, wait a second, um, that's devaluing the life of the infant. It's allowing people to get a lesser sentence even for whatever reason that they killed the children. And it doesn't really test out our notions, our traditional notions, uh, both culturally and legally, of not holding people responsible for things that it would be wrong to hold them responsible. The same thing, charging a child with with murder who accidentally sets fire to a house, right? Uh, playing with matches. So those laws are out there. We don't have those in the United States. Maybe a couple of states do, but we have the insanity defense. And the insanity defense in Massachusetts says that if a person is suffering from a mental disease, a serious mental illness, and as a result of that illness, they lack substantial capacity to uh, appreciate the wrongfulness of their conduct or to conform their behavior to the requirements of the law, they will be found not guilty by reason of mental illness. And the way the process works, and with, and in, and I've testified in cases where it was so obvious, it was so obvious that the defendant was severely mentally ill at the time. The, the, these were men, evaluate, the evaluators at Bridgewater agreed, I agreed as the defense expert, or sometimes the prosecution expert, the expert on the other side agreed. So the prosecutor said, okay, we're going to change the plea. Because in Massachusetts, if a first-degree murder case has to be tried before a jury, right? So what they do is they change the plea to second-degree murder. It becomes a bench trial. It's just heard by the judge. The, state, the Commonwealth puts in its case in chief, proves the crime. The way it works in Massachusetts is that the defense then raises an insanity defense, you know, so people testify, but it's all shortened compared to what a usual murder trial is. And then the prosecution puts in their expert and then the judge having, the cases having been closed by the prosecution and the defense, the judge then renders a verdict, which was obvious from the beginning. Uh, not guilty by reason of mental illness. And based upon that, the judge then commits the, the defendant who is now acquitted, not, not guilty of any crime, commits that person to a, the appropriate forensic hospital, Framingham State for women, at least as far as I think that's still the case, or Bridgewater for men, and for a period of evaluation and treatment, initially of six months. Hmm. And then if they're recommitted at the end of six months, it's for one year sentences going forward. Um, and so during that time, people are at the end of that initial six month period, the person is evaluated to determine if they're still mentally ill and still a danger to themselves or others. And, and, with, some not, and with some medication and treatment, they can quickly present as not, right? Well, you, you would hope quickly, but you know, this is going to be a very difficult case because even if the psych, when the psychosis revolves, 
I can't imagine that there wouldn't be a substantial period of very serious depression. Right. I actually uh, supervised a um, a resident at, at VA who had a case just like that, where uh, a woman was in the psych hospital who had killed her child during a psychotic episode and remained psychotic at that time. And the resident was saying to me, you know, if our first, if our first oath is do no harm as a physician, should we break the psychosis with medication? What will happen, you know, to this person? Um, because she will torture herself for the rest of her life. Yeah. The rest of her life. Yeah, I mean, this is not an uncommon scenario. I mean, I I have uh, people I evaluated who were found in GRI and that you know end up at Bridgewater. One fellow killed his mother, and he was just appalled by what he had done, and yeah. you know suffers. It's a lifetime of suffering. But I don't think it's up to us to make that decision about whether a person should be remain psychotic or whether we we give medicine that can potentially bring them back to the reality, even if it's the reality of what they have done, and then manage that part. What about um, from the flip side of it? Yeah, yeah. The, the victim, their victims want some sort of retribution. And the victim, and obviously not talking about this uh, matter, but if there's a victim and that person is brought to a lucid state and released that eye for an eye is missing for the victim of or the family victim family of the victims well interesting so what typically happens if someone is about to be released from the hospital uh the the local attorney, the district attorney will weigh in at the hearing and often allow victim witness statements about the impact on them and, and their concerns about that, right? In many cases, since most people, especially most people with, with severe mental illness like this, kill family members, the victims are other family members. And so they may be more willing to have that person back out in the community and and try and reconcile some of the pain from this. But you make a good point, Mark. That you know, if it's if it's a, a random murder in the community by someone with a severe mental illness, others you know want that person behind, not behind bars, but somewhere where they're not likely to do this again. Right. And you know, and and don't have a lot of confidence in either the medication or the treatment or that the person will continue to comply with the treatment. Or those people may simply want that person to be punished, not even, yes, I right. agree they're lucid now. I agree that maybe it was mental illness, but I'm still unwilling to accept that they can be free after what they did. Oh, sure. But that's the reason why they don't have the final say. Really. Right. We, we allow victims to to have input into the process and we have neutral parties judges make those make those decisions going forward you're quite an anomaly with the jd and the md it's fascinating listening to the uh the breadth of knowledge here but i, I do appreciate that initial quote i'm a recovering lawyer <laughs> yes that's a, that's a really really good one md and jd that we learned here today Dr. Shouten, I have heard of postpartum depression, but only recently was the term postpartum psychosis brought into my world. Can you help other people who are confused about all of what's going on and, and help us understand the difference? Sure, I'll try. Um, postpartum depression is really common. Uh, it occurs in... 10 to 20% of women who give birth. It's marked by the classic symptoms of depression. It has some, there are some differing factors that I, I won't go into all the details, but major depression, right? Depressed mood, sad all the time. 
lack of enjoyment of activities, lack of pleasure in having a newborn or being with family or engaging in the usual things that one would think would be a, would be positive and enjoyable. Um, sleep disturbance, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep uh, or sleeping all the time. Uh, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, uh, guilt, you know, irrational guilt about things. Uh, low energy, difficulty concentrating, loss of appetite or overeating, uh, either agitation or sitting around and being very sluggish and, you know, basically sitting and not moving. And thoughts of harming oneself, the suicidality and everything from thoughts of doing that to actually efforts to do it. So those are classic symptoms of major depression. They come on differentially in the postpartum period. They are likely, there doesn't have to be a history of mental illness, but there's often a history of depression in the family, especially bipolar disorder. Uh, so manic depressive illness. And it does seem to be related to the shift in hormones postpartum, right? So that's postpartum depression. Now, depression can become so severe that it becomes a psychotic depression, right? And postpartum depression is very common in people who, like I said, there's a, there's a tendency to bipolar disorder in the family. So manic depressive illness in the family. And so the most common form of manic, dis, manic depressive illness is, is mixed state where people have both manic and depressive symptoms, right? So imagine this in someone who's just given birth as primary responsibility for a newborn is told, oh, you must be so happy you have this child and is feeling down and despondent and hopeless and not really interested and, and irritable, right? So that's the depression part, right? Psychosis, like schizophrenia, it's schizophrenia and other related psychotic disorders, is a disorder in which people lose contact with reality and, and they experience delusions, fixed false beliefs that are held, that are unshakable, even in the face of all evidence to the contrary, right? Um, of so, course, so, this so, it's, so it's really the depression is really difficulty with feelings, and then the psychosis is difficulty with thinking. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great way to characterize it. Okay. And postpartum psychosis, you know, whereas postpartum depression up to twenty percent, maybe more. And and by the way, that doesn't include the baby blues. People would have low level, just yeah, I'm kind of down, exhausted, and kind of sad. And not as happy, but they don't have it's subsyndromal, right? They don't have all the the uh, the symptoms of major depression. But yeah, it's a disorder of of thinking about how the world and what the world is, and who is this the same person? Are you my husband? Are you not my husband? Is this the baby? The baby was switched. Um, those sort of delusional beliefs again, fixed false beliefs, unshakable. Uh, and, and unsupported by evidence to the contrary. So, and when when that's presented and identified, how is it treated? Uh, well, postpartum psychosis really ought to be treated in an inpatient setting, right? People, as soon as it's recognized, really the person should be hospitalized because it is so rapid in how it develops. Mm. It evolves very quickly, and it's by the way, it is uncommon. It's in, I think the, the numbers I found were like one to two births per thousand. So help me with the arithmetic here. What's that 0.1%? Yeah. So the most common thing is people say, oh, you'll feel better. You'll feel better. You'll feel better. Because no one wants to believe that this could really be happening to them because it's so unusual. Right. And the person is quietly sitting there going, oh my God, what the hell is wrong with me? I'm having these. Having these until they lose that degree of insight. Mm -hmm. So I hopefully that helps me. Is it misdiagnosed as postpartum depression in the beginning, or is it so, uh, is it presents so differently that they wouldn't be confused? It can if it's postpartum psychotic depression. It initially presents as depression and evolves into the psychosis. Okay, in most cases, but postpartum psychosis it can be just like flat out of the gate you know, yeah. psychotic thinking. Ah, very rare. Thank goodness. It's very rare. But 
with devastating, devastating effects. So we were talking about children with this, obviously. Was there something you wanted to comment on about that, Dr. Shouten? Well, not so much about the children, but childbirth, child rearing, for those of us who have children, fortunately, much, much older now, um, it's not easy, mm -hmm. right? They don't come with instruction manuals, no matter how much prep they give you at the hospital. Um, kids can be colicky. You're sleep deprived, irritable. It's very difficult. There are all sorts of strains or disappointments. Or it, it's hard. So the idea of harming a child is usually fleeting, but it's not that uncommon, especially in people without without mental illness, like normal controls, right? Of people who have these thoughts about, oh, I'd just like to get rid of this kid, mm -hmm. right? And it's terrible, it's a shameful thing that people have a hard time talking about. But if they could talk about it in a mother's group or in a parent's group, like, yeah, this is really hard. And there are some times I'm really at the end of my rope. Yeah, me too, right? That sort of support is really helpful. The other thing um, I should point out, because I, I've treated a couple of women with this, uh, intrusive, what we call ego dystonic thoughts of Can you just harming. Explain what ego dystonic okay, is. Okay, ego dystonic. I mean, it's not, it's a thought that I don't like. Yeah. It's foreign to me. It upsets me that I'm having this thought. Mm. Um, and it's intrusive, right? There are some types, some, some cases of obsessive compulsive disorder with intrusive thoughts, compulsive thoughts about where the mother just keeps having this intrusive thought, I'm going to hurt my baby, I'm going to hurt my baby, right? Uh, rarely do they do so but they struggle with overwhelming anxiety, this sort of overwhelming anxiety that comes with OCD when people resist their obsessions and compulsion. But of course, then there's the, the terror of it. Like, oh my God, I would never want to hurt my baby, but I keep thinking about drowning the baby, hurting the baby, dropping, throwing the baby. Um, and I've treated several people with that successfully with standard medications for... Um, Obsessive compulsive disorder plus cognitive behavioral therapy referrals to to help them manage the thoughts as they come back. Would would some of those people sadly wind up suiciding because they just cannot tolerate the idea of hurting someone else? There there is that risk. It's not nearly as high as the risk of of somebody suiciding. You know, it's sort of a murder suicide with with psychotic, yeah. you know, postpartum psychosis. What about the recurrence um, of, of a postpartum psychosis? If it happens once and you have another baby, are you at higher risk for it this, later on? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have any data on that, but I would, I would assume so. Certainly it's true with postpartum depression. Women who have an episode of postpartum depression uh, and then have a subsequent child are at increased risk of a, another episode for which so, they're then prepared right, right, in, right. in advance and, so in this particular case that we're talking about it seems that the the mother then did try to suicide she jumped out of a window how do we how do we sort of so how do we sort of integrate that into the psychotic process? Do we know that she was suiciding or escaping? We don't, but okay. we, we know that, that she jumped out of window. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, and again, I can't speak, wouldn't speak. I didn't, haven't evaluated her. And even if I had, right, I can't speak to the gold, Goldwater, right? Like, well, it's more than cold water. It's just common yeah. decency. Fair enough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Fair enough. Good, good, good. Um, but we can talk about the gold water rule if you want. Um, you know, the numbers I did find on this, because I, I did a little research, 
estimates somewhere between 15 and 30% of mothers and 40 to 60% of fathers who kill their children, you know, engage in filicide, commit suicide. Mm. And so the, if we go back to the altruistic motive, yeah. the world is such a dark place. It's such an awful place. I'm part of the evil in this world. I need to remove, I need to end this. Or mm. I can't let my children suffer like this and, and live in this world. So I'll kill the children and I'll kill myself. Or they, you know, a person comes to the realization about what they had just done and then do it. I mean, there, so there are lots of different motivations. Mm. Again, it, I, I think as a parent, and I'm sure for those who even are not parents, we were all children at some point, the idea that someone could kill their child, no matter what the circumstance. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad uh, that it's not something that we can readily appreciate and, and go, oh, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's really, it, I think it says a lot also about who we are as a species, that it's so confusing to us, that it's, it's a complete antithesis to what we expect to do which is care for our children and again that's i think that's one of the reasons why the chances of success with an insanity defense so it when, when there's substantial evidence of serious mental illness right as evidenced by rapidity of onset the degree of, of distorted thinking and distorted mood and distorted behavior even prior to this you know, to the to the tragic end, um, people look at that and say, "Oh, yeah, no, this is really it would it would be wrong for us to hold this person morally responsible for their behavior and to and to punish them, no matter how angry other people may be. It just it would be wrong um, to hold them criminally responsible, right, and to punish them as as criminal because they did not understand the difference between right and wrong." Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's you know we can talk about mens rea and act, you know actus reus, the, the guilty act, mens rea, the guilty intent. Well, she had the guilty, you know, somebody like this has the guilty intent, but their guilty intent is influenced by a severe illness that renders them unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of their conduct or to conform their behavior. Now, wrongfulness of their conduct, we tend to think of that as legal wrongfulness did they know it was against the law did they know that somebody else would stop them right and uh and in many cases if you look at the andrea yates case down in in uh texas from a number of years ago killed their five children uh you know if you look at a number of these cases the the woman who kills her children waits till the husband is out of the house, waits till no one's around. So clearly knows that someone else would stop it. So what, wait, isn't there knowledge of wrongfulness? But years ago, Justice, very famous Justice Cardozo um, from New York and then on the Supreme Court, came up with a um, the concept of the deific decree defense. In other words, as you know, Abraham, God instructed Abraham to, to kill Isaac, right, as a test of faith. Well, if God comes to someone in their delusional state or they believe God has come to them and commanded them to do this, even though they know that they're violating a law, even though they know that if a policeman was there, they would stop them. So they have knowledge of legal wrongfulness. The, the moral certainty, the, the belief that this is morally compelled, deific, decreed, decreed by God, still qualifies as lack of appreciation, or appreciation of the wrongfulness of the conduct. So let, let me lead off by saying this is the most difficult part of the I am. Mm. And for our listeners, they know that the I am is saying that we're always doing the best we can. This is my current maximum potential, that I am doing the best I can in response to the four domains of your home, the social domain of the rest of the world, your biological domain of your brain and body, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. The I am never said, though, that we were going to get it right, just that we were going to try. And 
in this case, this and and all the the criminal things, the the poor decisions, the the things that are sort of antithetical to who we are in society. This is the hardest part about the I am. How could this person who killed her children be doing the best she could at that time? But she's influenced by the biological domain. And something has happened in her brain that the best those cells could do is perhaps misinterpret her mm -hmm. children as perhaps satanic. We don't know the details yet. But this is the toughest part about the I am. How can crime, I'm not saying that this is a crime, but how can a crime still be the best one can do? What do you think, Dr. Shelton? How can crime be the best that one can do? There's a, there's a, there's a, a song, I can't remember all the lyrics, but basically the theme is, uh, you know, uh, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got mm -hmm. bills to pay. I've got mouths to feed, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. And it goes through these scenarios of different people that this, you know, the, the singer encounters and why they're doing, why they're robbing him, why, why the woman's a sex worker, et cetera. So people make those conscious choices. And I think when you're talking about I am, I, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I looked at my options. I looked at the world around me. I look at my resources and this is the best I can do. Right. Wish I could do better. Yeah. That requires competent cognition that requires the capacity to weigh to to weigh all of those factors and make a decision to act when someone is suffering from psychosis their world they are living in a different world mm -hmm. so they're making we wouldn't see it as a rational decision, but they are using their own internal logic in the context of a world that we wouldn't recognize. And we, we would recognize it only as delusional. Right. We say, no, that's not true. I mean, um, you know, Aaron Alexis, who did the Washington Naval Yard shooting, you know, believed that the U.S. Navy was bombarding him with extreme low frequency radiation that they used in the sonar, sonar towers, right? I live in Annapolis. Uh, you go out in the river, you can see the sonar towers over at the Naval Academy that they used to communicate with the submarines, right? Extreme low. He believed that they were beaming him, call, beaming them into his head, causing him terrible physical symptoms. They were following him and he went and he, he I forget how, killed, I believe 10 people or 12 people. At the naval headquarters in DC, right? So, to him, that was the he, the only way he could stop the pain, the only way he could stop the persecution. He was he was forced into this, right? and then he killed himself. Mm. Killed himself. So, when someone is that detached from reality, we have to think about the world through their eyes. Yes, right, and and through their brains and and how they're experiencing it. Um, you know, it's. It's a question of is what's the behavior if the behavior was the product of a severe mental illness, was their behavior consistent with the mental illness? Were they really acting in self-defense against, you know, this is this is the McNaughton case, the original McNaughton case, where the person was acting self-defense because he thought that the Tories were out to get him. Yeah. Right. So um yeah, doing the best they can, but in a different reality. Right. You know? Maybe not the multiverse, the Marvel multiverse, but yeah. you know, it's a but, different reality. But but it but it's still, it doesn't mean you're not held responsible for these things, right? I mean, you in some way, because you know, if you think about it, what what do we do here as a, as psychiatrists and, and psychopharmacologists? We may suggest an antipsychotic medication, and that's a small change in the biological domain. We change the environment of those brain cells. Our hope is we change the response of those brain cells. And the person's psychosis 
breaks and they are back in touch with the reality that we share. But what have we done? We've just changed the environment of a cell. You change the environment, you change its response. And so the I'm saying that means, you know, if that's the case, then nothing's broken. But we're just changing an environment. And we don't know why people become psychotic completely. We don't know why people become depressed biochemically completely. We have got a lot of ideas. But it doesn't mean that we still don't have laws, that we don't have expectations, that we don't have things for our social domain that we agree to. And that is part of, I think, what we are seeing here. I think that we can all agree that this makes no sense what happened. And yet it happened. We, we share that together. Sure. I mean, it, it, and we have laws, but as part of our legal system, we've now, most, most it's true in most cultures, um, part of our legal system, we recognize that we're only, we're not going to hold people responsible if they meet certain criteria. And regardless, there are different criteria in different jurisdictions. But uh, Michael Moore, who's a, a, a lawyer and a philosopher and is now at Penn, wrote in a book years ago, you know, Law and Psychiatry, Rethinking the Relationship. He said, look, you take all the different insanity defense standards. They don't really matter. They come down to this. Was this person of such a status by virtue of their age? They're too young to be held morally responsible and you know, held criminally responsible. Intellectual disability or mental illness such that they were not practical reasoners. In other words, they didn't have the mental state to do the, I am doing the best I can I, to, to rationally make choices. They're deprived of rational reason. Mm. And if that's the case, we need to treat those individuals differently at the same time as we protect society. And so that's the idea when the person, okay, they're not guilty, they're not criminals, we're not punishing them as criminals, they're going to go to a facility and like any other person who is mentally ill and dangerous to themselves or others, kept in that facility and treated until such times they're no longer mentally ill and no longer a danger. Yeah. It's a powerful discussion, um, which I'm very grateful. And I hope our listeners are, are able to appreciate, you know, the nuance in all of this and, and really how it, it does apply to all of us that we all have a responsibility really to each other. And if somebody isn't doing what we expect, it doesn't mean that we judge them, but we try to look again at why they do what they do based on the influence of the domains. And those words look again, when we reverse them again, look again to repeat something, look like a spectator. Let's respect why people do what they do without judging them based on the influence of the domains. Because the four domains interact, a small change in any one of the domains can have a big effect. Dr. Shoten, given what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? Pay attention. Mm. Pay attention to the people around you when, when listen, be willing to listen, and this is often uncomfortable, be willing to listen to their pain, you know, to their disappointment, and don't argue with them about it, but listen, and, and if it's something that isn't going away, if it is veering off in a direction that makes no sense whatsoever, get that person some help. Yeah. Because too often people will sit back and, and, and be bystanders. You know, we see this in all realms, right? They're bystanders like, yeah, no, it's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. It'll go away. Just having a bad day. Yeah. And then one bad day becomes another and another and another and tragedy happens. Yeah. You know, as we say in psychiatry, denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? The other truth of the I am is everybody's got one. 
you're part of someone's home or social domain and through their IC domain, they're interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain. Cause you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. So what this means, you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you wanna be. Dr. Ronald Shouten, what kind of influence do you want to be? You know, the thing that I've always valued is, is being a teacher and and giving opportunities to people. Because I, I've had so many opportunities. I've been really blessed and had a chance to do things and in so many different areas. I mean, what I would like to see most is give people the opportunities to go into these fields so that there are some resources because we're right now, we have such a deficit in terms of numbers and talent in in all clinical professions, but certainly you know, social work and psychology and psychiatry. We, you know, more more child and adolescent psychiatrists retire every year than we graduate from all of the fellowship programs in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I think where I my influence, I would like to make an impact in terms of education and sort of spreading the word and getting making sure we have a workforce that can help attend to these very issues. Terrific. How do people get a chance to study with you? Uh, well, I still periodically teach the residents at MGH McLean. I do CME courses for the Mass General Psychiatry Academy. I'm teaching at St. Elizabeth's. I teach the Howard residents and, and medical students. Um, so I guess, you know, Come, come to Howard University College of Medicine or come to St. Elizabeth's for a residency. And, uh, and every once in a while, I get to be on a show like this. So. Yeah. Well, we appreciate appreciate that so much. Yeah, folks, we're, we're all in this together. Um, and uh, that means that we really have an opportunity to help each other. And Dr. Shanton, you are definitely doing that on such a, such a broad scale. So appreciate you being here tonight. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Good night, everyone.